Well, I'm not happy to report to you that this week I got scammed. I did. I fell for it. You know, I mean, there's all those scams out there in the world, and sometimes you fall for one, you learn. Uh, the scam that I fell for actually started a long time ago. Basically, what happened was uh, I got an ad on Instagram that said, hey, look at this camera thing that you can stick in your ear and clean your ear out. And uh, it has a camera on the end, and, and it's kind of gross, sorry. But it's got a camera on the end, and uh, you can stick it in your ear and clean it out, and it uh, goes to this app on your phone, and it's 100 bucks. I'm like, whoa, that would be cool if it was cheaper. So I waited. But I clicked on the ad, which means, of course, I was their target. So I got the ad again, and it was down to like 70 bucks. I thought, eh, no, it's not worth 70 bucks. Again, I clicked on it. I shouldn't have clicked on it again. The third time. This week, it was down to $37, and I thought, dude, that's a good deal. I mean, $37, bucks, it's worth the risk. Is it going to work? I don't know if it's going to work, whatever. So uh, I told Alexander, I'm like, you should, just, you should buy this, because we had talked about it. How cool would that be to like, go in your ear? I, that's kind of odd, but I like, want everything to be clean all the time, so I thought this would be great for $37. Bucks. So we did it. We bought it. It showed up this week, and uh, lo and behold, it was there. It looks like a camera. And maybe it is a camera. I don't really know because what they make you do is download this other app. The app's name is like all in Chinese. It has like one star rating. No offense, Chinese. But it has like a one star rating. And all the, the reviews are, this is a data mining service. They're trying to steal your data. So what they'll do is they'll get your, um, your camera. You'll allow it all this access to your phone. And all the app does, the whole point is, is to steal your data. So we never downloaded the app, so I'm glad Alexander caught that. So I didn't fall for the full scam, but at least we wasted $37. I, I was not happy about that. Something about that. I mean, it feels like you got robbed, right? Like, oh, man, I don't like that. I don't like falling for that because I'm not going to get it back. You try to return it, oh, yeah, have fun trying to return that thing, right? Oh, yeah, oh, we'll, we'll process your return. Oh, we can't process the return. Oh. Uh, yeah, so we lost $37, but it could have been worse, I guess. Behind every scam, behind every lie is a scammer. And I can only imagine who came up with this scam. Uh, pretty good idea, right? I mean, some pretty professional ads. They paid a lot for advertising. And look, they got me. I mean, not as bad as maybe somebody who downloaded the app and you know, had all their data stolen, but I still kind of fell for it. Uh, behind every scam, behind every lie, there's a liar. That's just generally too. I, I hope you know that there's a lot of lies that you hear in the world, a lot of lies that get sold to you and sound really good that are not true. I just wrote a, a list of some phrases that get tossed around in our world all the time that people accept as truth, but you need to know our lies. Here's some of them. You should do whatever makes you happy. Very common lie. Or this, be whoever or whatever you want to be. Or, simpler than that, you do you. Do whatever you want to do. Another lie that was sold a lot in, uh, when I was growing up especially, maybe not so much now, uh, follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. Seek Whatever. Or another one that's maybe more popular today, don't let anyone else tell you what to do or what not to do. Maybe the most common one today, you should uh, love yourself first. Put yourself first. Don't put anyone else before you. Uh, those are all lies, and you know, if you're a Christian, you might know, oh yeah, I've heard those. I mean, some of those, maybe there's some truth to some of it, but that's, those are really lies that will lead you to a bad place. But have you ever considered that behind every scam, there's a scammer? Behind every lie, there's a liar. And the Bible says very clearly that we are a part of a war. We're just in a small battle. That's why this new series we're talking about from Ephesians 6, our battle, our generation, we're just in one small part of the bigger war that's going on. But what you need to understand, and our text is going to tell us today, is that behind the battle, there is an enemy. 
Sometimes we just don't personalize it, and we think, yeah, there's evil out there, there's bad stuff out there, but we don't personalize it at all. But the Bible actually does personalize it. It says there is someone who stands behind the lies. That person is named a lot of different things. Sometimes he's called the devil. Sometimes he's called the serpent. Sometimes he's called Satan, right? That's the one we use most often. And a lot of people make a lot about Satan and the devil, but a lot of people are unbiblical about what they say. What we want to do today is understand who the enemy that we fight against is. We want to understand Satan, even though you didn't wake up this morning thinking, I want to learn about Satan today. Uh, You probably didn't think that, but that's what we're going to do today. So open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and look what Paul has to say about our enemy. This is a real enemy, a personal enemy, not just uh, an idea or a force, but a person who thinks and acts and makes decisions and has plans and schemes. Satan. For most of us, we don't think that there's a war going on. Most of us live as though uh, everything is just kind of normal. We do what we want to do, and we think that there's nothing more to it. But Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 6 to all these Christians, after he's explained what it looks like to be a Christian as a husband, a wife, a child, a father, a slave, a master. He's just talked to these different groups, and then he shifts his attention back to everybody. It's like you get all the groups back together and says, all right, everybody, finally, At the end of all this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So he's painting a picture. This is a war picture. He's saying, all right, everybody, you need strength. And if I were to preach a sermon today that says, hey, you need strength, a lot of you would put in your own, like, problems or struggles say, yeah, I need strength with my tests, or I need strength with these relationships. That's not what he's talking about, right? So let's understand what he's talking about. He says in verse 11 that there is a war that's going on, that there's a person that stands behind all these things, the devil, and he has schemes and plans. And what Paul says you need to do, and I need to do as a Christian, is to stand, to keep standing, stand against the schemes of the devil. The armor of God is something we're going to talk about a lot in this series. He actually is going to describe all these different parts of the armor of God that we're going to cover next week. I don't even want to cover that because that's next week's sermon. But I want you to look at verse number 12 because what Paul does is reminds them, okay, I just used the word devil, which even back then was very undefined. A lot of people, especially if you didn't grow up reading the Old Testament, you might have grown up as a, as a Gentile, learning a lot of different things about evil spirits, and it was confusing for a lot of people. So he says, all right, I want to tell you about this person, the devil. Verse number 12, all about Satan. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So our battle, our main fight is not against the people that we're dealing with, even evil people. That's not our main battle. I mean, there might be some conflict, but that's not the real thing. The real thing is something behind the things that you see. It says our real battle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against, this is a summary statement of all these things, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Heavenly places is kind of that phrase we've seen a lot in Ephesians to talk about uh, not the here, not the heaven, just kind of like the, the in-between, right? The, the, the place where spirits are, which, again, we'll talk about that because that's kind of confusing. Like, where do spirits live? But these categories, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, evil forces, those are four terms that really designate different kinds of uh, spiritual forces. And really, in the Bible, we only have two that are defined. 
we have one, Satan, right, an individual, and then the other is just a bunch of individuals called, we call them demons. They can also be called angels because they're people who have, uh, were created by God, not human people, but they were people created by God in the beginning who were good but chose to sin. Right? We call them demons today. All these names, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, says basically behind every battle, every spiritual battle we fight, we have individuals behind that. I, I hope that doesn't come as a total surprise to you. If you know the Bible and have read the Bible, you know this. There's angels and there's demons. But how often do you think behind the false teaching that you hear, behind the evil that you see in the world, there is demonic forces behind that? Probably not very often. In fact, sometimes if you hear people talk about Satan or talk about demons, your first response is like, oh, they're, they're crazy, they're, they're weird, something's wrong with them, they're always saying everything's Satan. Right, and I, can I just tell you, there are a lot of people who think everything's Satan and they're wrong, okay? Um, but there is a right sense that we should have biblically that behind evil, behind sin, behind lies, behind murder, Satan does stand behind that. He is a person who's influencing other people to do what's wrong. That's why verse 13, the last verse we'll cover today, it says, therefore, because of all that, because we have an evil enemy, you need to take up, carry, pick up, put on the whole armor of God. Remember in Ephesians 4, when he said you should put on the new self, or you take off the old self, you put on the new self, right? That is being renewed after the likeness of Jesus. He basically says that same thing in a different analogy, He's saying, put on this armor of God with all these specifics next week. He says, so that you may be able to withstand. Do you see the word stand in that? In the original language, the word stand is also in there. So that's the second time we've seen this word stand. Verse 11 says, stand. Verse 13 says that you would be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all. The idea is, do everything that you can to do what? To stand firm. That word stand, I think, is our main word, our most important word in this passage, because it's over and over and over again. Stand, stand, stand. What do you need to do? You need strength. Why? So that you can stand, so that you can keep standing. Uh, if you're in war and if you're in a battle, to stand is to hold the line or to be a, in a defensive posture. Right? He's actually not painting the picture, uh, like other passages might do this more, but this picture is not one of like conquest and like going out. The picture here is being built up so that you can hold the ground that you have. It's a different uh, military posture, right? But he's saying, look, this is what God has provided for you. Jesus has won the war, and now our job is to hold the line, to not let evil encroach further, to not fall ourselves individually or as a church or as groups for Satan's schemes. Stand firm. Keep on standing. One way that we might put that um, individually is we want you to keep standing. That looks like you continuing to be a Christian when you're 30, when you're 50, when you're 75. One of the ways we say is keep standing. Don't stop standing. Our enemy doesn't want that. I think in all this, there's a, something that stands behind our, our problem understanding this. Because I want to take this passage and bring it to you and say, how can you as a high school student today apply this? How can you understand this? What will be most helpful? The first thing that I just think we don't think through very often from verse number 12 is this. Point number one, I want you to realize that you are in a huge spiritual war. I want you to realize that. Just wake up to that fact. A lot of people never think this way. But no, we are in a huge spiritual war. It's not all about you. Like, you're not the main person in your story. I know that's another lie that you've been told, that your life is all about you, and you're the main character of your own story. That person's giving main character energy, right? Uh, well, okay. 
I understand what you mean, but you are not the main character in this story. I am not the main character in the story. Jesus is the main character in the story, and we're a part of this big thing going on. Right? You know the difference between a battle and a war? The reason they use the word war here, and this, this chapter has been about our battle, that's about our individual fighting. Right? So uh, give, give a war, right? The Civil War. Uh, that was a war because there's a lot of battles that made up that war. Uh, Gettysburg, right? That battle, that, that was a battle. It was three days long, but it was a battle. It was an individual fight. As a group and as a generation, it's like we make up an individual battle. Right? We're not going to be fighting a battle somewhere else, but we're in our time and our space now. But this is just a part of a larger war that has been going on since the beginning. Now, if I say realize you're in a huge spiritual war, um, one of the problems and one of the difficulties we might have with this is that most people today, maybe not most, but let's call it half. Half the people today in our culture are what are called materialists. I don't know if you ever heard that term, but it's a philosophical movement that started a long time ago. It became very popular when the scientific revolution came up in the 1700s and the 1800s. Materialism. It's the teaching or the philosophy that only things that you can taste, touch, see, or measure, that, those are the real things. Everything else is not real. So that's why if I said, hey, do you believe in spirits? You might be like, well, I don't know how to answer that question. Right? Uh, well, if you believe the Bible, you do believe in spirits. Right? Because this room right here, by the way, has tons of spirits in it. Do you know that? Tons of spirits. Uh, it has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 171 spirits are in this room. Have you ever thought about that? Immaterial beings. Right? That's why if you, know, you lost your arms and your legs, you wouldn't be half the person you were before. You're still you. Right? I mean, you might have lost a little weight and have to wear different clothes or something, but like, you're still you. You're not a different person now. That part of your body's gone. So if you believe the Bible, you believe that we're made of body, our, our, our physical, and our souls, or our spirits, right? Material, immaterial, right? We can't be materialists. Um, a lot of people who think they're very scientific uh, like to believe in materialism. Uh, that's infected our culture. A lot of people think, oh, it's weird or crazy or dumb or uneducated to believe in something other than what you can taste, touch, and smell. But ultimately, it's unbiblical to believe in materialism. Okay, here's, here's another very important reason we're not materialists, because God exists, right? God is spirit. You know, Jesus said God is spirit. That's John 4, 24. So God does not inhabit a body. You're never going to see God in a body other than Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is God. You're never going to see God the Father in a body. You're never going to see uh, God the Spirit in a body, as we learned about in main service today. You're never going to see him in a body. He's spirit. Right? Does that make him not real? No. Just like I would say you're real, even if you lost part of your body. You're still real. You're real, by the way, after you die, even though your body's dead. You will live on because your spirit still exists. The Bible is very clear about that. What the Bible is also very clear is before God made us, in the beginning, God created this other class of beings or persons that are mysterious to us because we don't actually learn a lot about them. We learn some things about them, but they're not on every page of the Bible. But, but the thing that he made, sometimes it's called the sons of God in the book of Job. Sometimes it's called angels in the New Testament. Sometimes they're called demons. But before God even made us, he made these different class of beings called angels. Satan, this spiritual enemy, is actually an angel. Sometimes, actually most of the time when he's referred to, he's actually called an angel. He's called an angel who, who fell into sin, who chose to do what's sinful. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and in Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 6, we see 
Satan is described as somebody who was good, who did good, but then thought, I want to be God. I want to get the worship that God gets. So he decided that, he wanted that, and he fought against God, and his whole plan after that has been to get us to do the same. So you gotta understand who Satan is here. Who's the devil? Who's Satan? Well, okay, one thing. He's a created being by God. God made him. Uh, He's spiritual, just like the angels are spiritual. Um, Satan and his demons chose to do what's sinful. I've said all that. Um, Also, in the the New Testament, Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's also called the ruler of this world. By who? Jesus. In John chapter 16. It's interesting. He calls him. He's the one who's in charge of this world right now. Not supremely not sovereignly like God is, but he has that level of authority, uh, even now. In Ephesians, if you're in Ephesians 6, if you just look um, to the left in your Bibles real quick at Ephesians chapter 2, you see Satan show up in uh, Ephesians 2 too. Look what he's called there. He says, remember, you're dead in your sins at one point. He says, if you're a Christian now, there was a time where you were dead in sin, in which you once walked, you lived in your sin. You were following at the time the course of this world. You were following, look at this, Satan shows up, The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. Called a couple different things, but that's the same person. Satan. Who is Satan? The Bible also says that Satan is in charge of some things. Uh, The way that it's put in 1 John 5, verse 19, 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God. Christians, we're from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Sometimes he's called the evil one. Sometimes he's called the slanderer. Sometimes he's called the opponent. And one thing that you can be sure Satan wants for you is what we see he wants for Peter. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Here's one thing that Satan wants. He wants each and every one of you not to follow God. That's something that we can know for a fact. Satan wants all of you not to follow God. And here's the problem. If you're a Christian, you think, well, wait a minute. Like, I'm in, though. How does, how does Satan, you know, why doesn't he just stop bothering me? He knows I'm in. Well, here, here's something that is interesting. Satan is not God. Satan is not God's equal. Right? We don't believe in what's called dualism. That's another philosophical idea that there's, like, half good and half evil in the world. We don't believe that because the Bible isn't presented that way. It says that God exists. He has all this power, all this authority. He is omnipresent. He's all these things. Satan is not. Satan is limited, which means, I don't know if you ever thought about this, it's kind of weird, but Satan can only be in one place at one time. You ever thought about that? Satan has to go places and travel. That's odd too, but that's how the book of Job, he says it about himself. I've been going back and forth. And it says Satan presented himself before God, just like the other angels. So Satan has to go from place to place. So sometimes we think... um, And this is where I think people go wrong about Satan. They think, oh man, I've seen Satan, or I know Satan. Here's the thing I can say for pretty confident surety. If you think you've seen Satan, you probably haven't because he can only be in one place at one time. What's the likelihood he showed up for you? Uh, Just pretty low likelihood. You're you're not super important. Maybe maybe super important people, no offense that you're not super important. You know what I mean, right? Uh, But yes, Satan is involved, but ultimately Satan sends his demons because there could be millions of millions on them. We don't know how many there are. Right? There could be a huge amount of them. Those are the, the ones who probably are uh, primary people who we interact with on a day-to-day basis. One thing you can know for certain, Satan wants you to fall away. Satan does not know uh, who's saved and who's not in the same way that God does. Right? So Satan looks at you. 
he knows more about your life than maybe the person sitting next to you because he knows what you do in secret, right? He knows who you really are in some sense. He doesn't know your heart, though, right? Does Satan know if you're saved or not? Well, that's hard to say. So I think Satan's strategy and his attack on anyone who's professing faith in Christ is, here, I want them out of the church. I want them away from fellowship. I want them to not be reading God's word. I don't want them to be praying. I mean, you name all the things. That's Satan's strategy for you whether you're saved or not. And the thing is, for those who are not truly saved, Satan's probably going to win in their life in some respect to do some of those things that are his schemes, which is why um, that's the next thing we need to talk about. If Satan is there and we need to know who he is, well, what are his plans? What are his schemes? Because verse 11 says he's got all these schemes that Paul says don't fall to. Uh, Point number two, I want you to identify Satan's strategies to make you fall. I want you to identify those. Now, you can't do that perfectly. It's hard to know everything that Satan's going to do. But just like uh, you prepare for a game, whether you're a football player or another athlete, you got to watch the tape. If you're a fighter, if you're a wrestler, you got to watch the tape. Know what your opponent does. I mean, if you don't do that, you're not, you can't really say you're prepared for a fight if you don't at least look back on how he fought before and try to come up with a counter strategy against him. The schemes of the devil. Paul says something interesting about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, it's just interesting. He says something that you and I probably wouldn't say. We're probably not bold enough to say this, but listen to Paul. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. Paul's like, me and my guys, we know Satan's schemes. We don't want to follow him. We're not ignorant of his plans. We're not, we're not stupid. We know what he's doing. It's like, whoa, would you ever really say that? Paul has this high awareness of what Satan was doing that we need to develop and cultivate. We can't go from zero to Paul in a second, but you can get to the place where you start to understand and recognize this is Satan's work. This is temptation. This is leading people astray. So what does he do? I basically made four categories here. Um, Big things that Satan does and then some things under that. The first thing that Satan does in the Bible is very clear. Satan lies. Here's something you should just know about Satan. If we're watching tape, Satan lies. Very clear. We know that because Jesus told us so. John chapter 8, verse 44. Satan lies. Jesus said, you, to these group of seemingly religious people who were not right with God, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. I would want to throw a flag on the play and say, wait a minute, Jesus. These Jewish people, do you really think they want to like follow Satan? Are they Satan worshipers? Are they drinking out of blood out of some skull? Like, what do you mean they're Satan worshipers? These are like good Jewish people. But Jesus says about them, no, no, no. Like, they're just, they're, you're just doing what Satan wants you to do. So I also can know about these Satan's lies that you don't have to know you're following Satan to be following Satan. In fact, I think, personally, it's my opinion, most people who are doing Satan's will don't know they're doing Satan's will. They're just doing what they want to do. I can say that with some clarity because Ephesians chapter 2, remember the passage we just looked at? It says in the next verse, this is Ephesians 2, 3, it says that following the course of the air, following the, the, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Okay, So if you're a person who's doing whatever you want to do, and you're carrying out the passions of your flesh and the, just the things that you want to do. And if you're a person who always says yes to every desire, whether good or bad in your life, guess what you're doing? Following Satan. 
You might not wear the Satan mascot and, you know, you might not wear the, the jersey that says, hey, I'm on Satan's team. But when you just do whatever you want to do all the time, Paul says here, that's what it means to follow the course of the world. Follow the prince of the power of the air. Satan lies. The first time Satan lied in scripture is Genesis chapter 3 when he tempts Eve to sin. You know the first thing that comes out of Satan's mouth, the serpent? Listen to what Satan says. First thing he said to the woman was, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He starts off by questioning God's word and saying, no, 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 no. Are you sure you got that right? I don't think that's what he really meant. He goes on to say in Genesis 3, the real reason God did that, it's not because it was good for you to obey him. It's because he was trying to keep something good away from you. That's one of the most common lies of Satan today. That, oh, those rules that God has and the word that he has, no, 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 that's to restrict you and to keep you from being who you really could be and to keep you from getting what you really want. Just toss off the authority of God. Psalm 2 says that. Let's, uh, let us cast off the cords of God. Let's just get rid of it. That's Satan's, I think, number one most effective lie in our world today. Just interesting. If you ever see false teaching, if you ever see lies in our culture, do you know who stands behind all that? Satan does. You might say, oh, I'm not sure about that. Well, back in John 8, when Jesus calls these people out for following Satan, he says, here's something you should know about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because in him there is no truth. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's like the originator. He's the source. You think you're a good liar? Well, Satan can top that. He was the first liar. He's the greatest liar. So whenever there's lies, even, interesting, he was a murderer. He sought the harm of the people he was talking to. Did Satan really believe that Eve would be better off disobeying God? No way. He had just fallen. He knew the consequences, but he willfully came in acting like he was caring for Eve's best interest, and the reality was, no way. He knew exactly what would happen. He knew it wouldn't be better for her. It's not a thing you can know about these lies. Some people fall for lies, and they think that the people who are lying to them actually love them, when the reality is, whoever tells you God's word and tells you the truth, those are the people who love you, not the people that lie to you and tell you to act on your desires. That's that's satanic. Satan continues to lie. He lied to, to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He takes God's word and he twists it. So he says, oh, you know, don't, don't you know this Bible verse? And he used it to tempt Jesus. It's very interesting. He uses God's perfect word, twists it a little bit, and uses it to tempt Jesus. Very interesting. He continues to do that today. There are people who stand in churches or there's people who you know, are on social media and they, they, they claim to like speak for God and from God and they use the Bible, but, but yet they're twisting it, using it in a way that God never designed, and in the process, um, doing a lot of damage because they're moving people away from God's purpose and his word. The Bible also says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Write this down, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Paul has these opponents who are trying to slander him, and he says, it's no wonder they slander me. Satan does it all the time too. It says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul's like, 
I, I know where they're going. These people who come in and pretend to speak for God, yet they are really doing Satan's work. First Timothy 4.1, Paul says this. Now the Spirit expressly says, this is First Timothy 4.1, that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teaching of demons. So when there's false teaching that's going on, like, hey, you should love yourself first. Like, hey, do whatever you want to do. Hey, live your best life now. Hey, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what sin you commit. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. False teaching like that, you know who it stands behind that? Satan. Who stands behind that is demons. Another thing Satan does, it's very interesting in the scriptures. When Jesus tells the parable of the sower, do you remember that? Where Jesus told his parable, the sower went out, sowed all this seed all over the place. That's the word of God. And the soils are hearts. He says at the end of that parable, this is Matthew 13, 19, says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This was the seed that was sown along the path. Okay, So here's what he says, very interesting. When people hear God's word and it doesn't make sense and they want to push it away and they don't like it and they're hard-hearted against the word, Satan comes and takes it away. It's, we're so naturalistic. We're so materialistic. We think, oh, the reason they forgot about the gospel is just because maybe, I mean, we hear a lot of things and we remember a lot of things and not, not everything can fit in our brains, guys. But Jesus says, no, no, Satan is involved to take the word of God out of people's heads and hearts. That's very strange. We don't think about that. And remember, this is for people who were not embracing the truth. Satan lies. That's the first thing. Satan tempts, okay? That's similar to lying, but Satan tempts. What is a temptation? James defines a temptation in James 1 as when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. I thought it'd be really cool to be able to clean my ears. I was lured and enticed by that desire. I thought, man, that'd be so cool if I could see what's going on in my ear or my daughter's ear. I was like, that would be so smart. She's got earwax, sorry. Um, I'm like, I want to see in there. So I was lured and enticed, and guess what? I bought the stupid thing because I had a desire, and I was lured and enticed by that desire. Here's what Satan does, okay? He doesn't necessarily give you every desire you have, but you've got some out-of-bounds desires, and what he might do is present things to you that appeal to those desires, trying to get you to act on those desires. And that's what Ephesians 2, 2 to 3 is all about, right? We already said that. When we follow the course of the world, when we're people who carry out the passions of our flesh and the desires of the body and the mind, Satan uses people's lack of self-control. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, to these married people, he says, look, you understand, uh, some of you guys don't have self-control, and if you guys aren't close and intimate together as married couples, you know what? Satan will just go right in there, and he'll utilize your lack of self-control to get you to sin. Very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 4 about the, when people weren't getting along. He says, be angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger lest you give a foothold or a place to the devil. Like even for you, if you don't get along with other Christians and you stay mad at them, Paul says you're giving Satan an opportunity. You're giving him a, a place to tempt you. Satan drops people to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 26 says about the opponents of Timothy. Paul says, look, you got some people that you're gonna have to, you know, seems like do battle against, but just know that a lot of those people who believe wrong things, they're trapped by Satan. It says, help people come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 
Satan's a murderer. Satan even, in Ezekiel chapter 28, influences this king of Tyre to do evil things. It's like, you read Ezekiel 28, that's the passage everyone points to to talk about Satan. It's like, is this talking about Satan or this prince? And like, you don't even know the difference because it's like they're acting in unison. Satan will even use governmental officials, people who are in positions of power, to do his will. Happens all the time. Happened then, happens now. The next thing Satan does, very important, third thing, Satan accuses God's people. So Satan lies, Satan tempts, Satan also accuses God's people. In Zechariah 3, Old Testament book, there was the the high priest named Joshua who was there before God. And Satan comes up and says to God, look how sinful this guy is. That's your priest? And Joshua is relatively righteous, but he's still a sinner just like all of us. And Satan just starts lobbing all these attacks at God, saying, God, look how dumb, look how sinful your so-called righteous people are. Happens in Revelation 12, too. Revelation 12, verse 10 says that the accuser of our brethren, that's the, that's the name given to Jesus, or not to Jesus, right, to Satan. It's this term used to say Satan stands before God and takes all your sin and wants to throw it back at God and say, look how sinful your people are. Look how sinful they are. And sometimes they'll even do that to you. If you're a person whose sins have truly been forgiven and you trust in Christ for salvation and you're saved, sometimes one of the things that Satan and his demons will do is take your sin and just remind you, remind you, remind you. That's called accusation. If it's God who's reminding you of your sin so you'll repent of it, that's different. But if your sin's been forgiven and dealt with and done and it comes up over and over again in your mind, that's not God who's bringing that up. It's Satan. Now, on the other hand, if you're a person who's not repented of your sin and you're not forgiven, that's God's grace to bring it up to you again, to say, hey, you gotta repent. You gotta turn from all this. Satan lies. Satan tempts. Satan accuses. And also, lastly, Satan opposes God's people. That's just kind of the the basic bottom line. He wants to oppose God's people. How does he do it? Well, sometimes through physical things. Job, he physically hurt his body. He had sores on his skin. Paul, same thing. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says that the, the thorn in the flesh, like this thing, this bodily problem with Paul, we don't know if it was his eye or maybe his body, uh, says that was from Satan. Interesting. That Satan was involved in that, hurting one of God's workers. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18 says that Satan hinders God's workers. It says, hey, we don't want to come to you later unless Satan hinders us. Satan has hindered us in the past from coming to you. We wanted to visit you on the mission field, but we couldn't because Satan hindered us. What really happened, right? Well, Satan hindered them. But like what happened in life? Maybe they ran out of money. Maybe there was a you know, problem with the road. Like we don't know physically what happened, but Paul says, hey, behind all the physical stuff, there's spiritual stuff behind that too. Satan wants Christians to refuse to forgive other Christians. You know that passage I mentioned, 2 Corinthians 2, 11? where Paul says, I'm not tricked by Satan's schemes. Do you know what Satan's scheme in that passage was? He was telling these group of Christians, hey, there's a Christian who sinned, and they did what was wrong, but they're repentant. Don't you see their repentance? Now, bring that person back, because we're not gonna be outwitted by Satan. It's like, whoa, what are you talking about? The whole point is, what was Satan's scheme for that church? It was to get a group of Christians to become self-righteous and to think we can't accept that person back. They sinned. And Paul says, we're not going to fall for Satan's schemes. That's a scheme of Satan, to keep you from forgiving people who are truly repentant. It's another scheme. Also, 
maybe the biggest one, 2 Corinthians 11.3. One of Satan's schemes, Paul says there, I'm afraid for you that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, your mind, will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I think that's one of Satan's most effective schemes for Christians today. He opposes you. How? Well, he gets you to think and to see and to hear, and he presents a lot of things that are appealing for you to think and see and hear that are taking away from your pure devotion to Christ. Satan wants you not to read your Bible. He wants you not to pray. He wants to distract you. He'll give you so many things that are easy and distracting and feel good. He'll, he'll give it to you so easily. You don't even have to look for him. Sometimes those things will find you. He says, well, our main goal needs to be pure devotion to Christ. And that's what this all comes back to. Back in Ephesians 6, he says, um, the beginning of this passage, after all that bad news, I know that was a lot of bad news, two points of, of hard things, right? We have a real enemy who's personal, who's powerful, who we should not, never underestimate. What you should step back and say is, wow, I, I had no idea how powerful he was. But that's not the end of the story. That's why Ephesians 6.10 says, but finally, be strong in the Lord. Jesus offers strength for us, and we need to take that strength. Point number three, get strength from the victorious Lord Jesus. He says, be strengthened in the Lord. That's Jesus. Whenever you see the word Lord, especially here in Ephesians, that's always referring to Jesus. Jesus has power to offer you because he's victorious, because he is a winner. John puts it like this, 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. I was talking about false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So, yes, was point one to point two scary? It should be scary. And in fact, if you're one of those people that thinks, oh, I can just now tell Satan, do this, do that, and tell demons, you, you can't do any of that, right? Or you could try. A lot of people try. It's not wise. Even in the book of Jude, it says that Michael the archangel wouldn't even, like, tell Satan what to do on his own authority. He needed Jesus to do it. Don't underestimate Satan. But also don't underestimate Christ. They're not like equal and opposites, Jesus and Satan. Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Satan, and he has power available for you. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray, the last thing he taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, was lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, God. Please keep us, protect us, and deliver us from the evil one. Don't, don't let us fall. We're gullible sometimes, we're susceptible, we're vulnerable, but don't let us fall. When Jesus came to earth, one of the things he came to do, according to 1 John 3, was to destroy the works of the devil. I know I've given you a lot of passages, but write this one down. 1 John 3, verses 8 and 9. 1 John 3, 8 and 9 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he can't keep on sinning like he did before because he's been born of God. It's just different now. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Cosmically, yes. Individually, yes. In your life, yes. Your slavery to sin, yes. He offers that offers that because he rose from the dead and, and really that's like the that's what the 
Bible authors are always going back to. They're always saying because Jesus rose from the dead, because he reigns now. He's alive, and that means he's got power, and that means he's got power over death. Romans 6, 4 says, because he rose from the death, we can walk in newness of life. Not just because we're seeing a good example, but because he's giving us power. This command, be strong in the Lord, is a passive command, not an active command. Active commands are when you go do something. Passive commands are, it says you need to go get something. You need to have something done to you. You need to be the recipient of some kind of action. It says you need to be strengthened by the Lord. You need to go to him. And our text is going to say later, the main way we do that in verse number 18 of Ephesians 6 is prayer. He talks about prayer. And he talks about prayer again. He talks about five different kinds of prayer, basically, in Ephesians 6, 18. You need strength from him. Another way to put this is that without Christ, you are defenseless. Without him, without his help, you got nothing going on that's good for you. So that's why the main command that, that leads us into next week, point number four, is this. You need to prepare to stand strong against temptation. You need to prepare to stand strong against temptation. That's going to be the armor of God passage. We're going to get more into that later. There's two passages that we're going to look at during small groups on Wednesday night. The first one is James 4, verses 7 to 10. And the second one is 1 Peter 5. And those two passages are very, very similar because they give us a command. They say, you should resist him, resist Satan. How do you do that? Well, that passage says a few things. James 4 and 1 Peter 5 say, here's how you start by uh, resisting him is by submitting to God. If your life comes under submission to God, you're going to say, I'll do whatever God wants me to do. That's step number one. Then he says, you need to be alert and watchful. That's point number two that we talked about today, right? Be aware, identify Satan's schemes. And then it says, resist him and his temptations. And all around in James 4, it says if you fall, you need to confess your sin. Confess it, bring it to the light, and repent of it. How do you fight back against Satan in your life? Well, some of us, it's going to start just by saying, I need to to repent of some sin. I have not given up this sin. I've not confessed this sin. And then, putting on the whole armor of God. And that's next week. That's why this whole passage paints this war picture. And the war picture is like, yeah, we just took a city. Imagine some ancient city with these big walls. It says, we just took this city. Jesus is our king, and he brought us in here. And now we're there. We're safe. But we're not so safe because we still have enemies on the outside. And what he's going to say is, hey, you need to arm yourself and get ready for the battle. And all today was about is just getting you ready to see, okay, we've got a battle. We have an enemy. We need to be aware of his schemes. We don't want to be ignorant and dumb anymore. We don't want to let Satan have his way in my life or in this church. We don't want to do that at all. We need to be aware and ready so that we can stand strong. Keep on standing. We'll talk more about that next week. But I want to pray right now that God would help us do this. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that your word is so clear about our enemy. We know that without your word and its clarity, we would never figure these things out on our own. So I pray that all of us would be more aware of Satan's work in our life and in our world, that we'd even see falsehood this week and we'd identify it and we know that's that's not you, God. That's, That's Satan who's behind that. I pray that this scary contemplation on who our enemy is would not drive us into some kind of crazy amount of fear, but would drive us to you because we know that you are greater than he who's in the world. We know that you're in us and that you'll help us. We also recognize we don't deserve that. We have no strength on our own. As Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. 
I pray that we would be a strong group of Christians and that we'd fight against all the schemes of Satan that he has in our world and in our lives individually. Pray that we'd be more aware and that we'd be ready to fight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.